There's no way around it. Caring for a loved one with dementia is not for the faint of heart. We don't know what we don't know, and many families focus so much on the person with dementia that they forget to keep their eyes on the family member managing care, which can be catastrophic. In this podcast, we'll help you become more proactive and remind you to focus on yourself. We will share challenges and wins and guidance from professionals at every step in the journey of caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's and other dementias. Welcome to the Eye on the Caregiver podcast. Sean and I are delighted to have Dr. Brittany Lamb back with us today. Dr. Lamb is an ER physician and dementia family caregiver advocate. We had so much to discuss last time that we wanted to keep the conversation going. So Dr. Lamb, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you're our, you're our first time uh, double guest. So congratulations. Thank you. You're happy to come anytime. Talk to you guys. Well, I'm sure you'll be back even more. So, um, we had like such a lively conversation last time and we, we, we didn't get to everything. So let's, let's talk today about, uh, medical decision matters. So, uh, last, last time you were on, you gave our listeners a lot to think about. And, um, so today let's spend a little time talking about planning for unexpected emergencies as a dementia caregiver. So as an ER physician, I, I, I assume you've seen it all. Can you spend a little time talking about how the ER works, especially as it relates to older adults who may be dealing with cognitive impairments? Yeah, so um, the ER is a chaotic place. It's hectic and loud, and um, for someone with cognitive impairment, it can be quite overwhelming. Um, but, you know, logistically kind of how it works is when you get in there, you're, you're asked what's going on, and you're going to be registered and then you're going to be triaged. Um, and so you, you're going to have to repeat your story or your, you know, your person is going to be asked the same questions over and over again. And thus, if you're there, hopefully you'll be helping answer those questions if they need help. But you repeat your story over and over again, then hopefully you don't have to wait too long and you get in a room and then people come in and, and usually it's going to be a medical provider. So a physician or a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner comes in and assesses your person and then figures out what tests need to be run. Um, now, if your person is super sick, they're going to get seen fast, faster. So remember that ER is not first come, first serve. It's definitely we take care of the sickest person first, which can create a lot of frustration, I think, for family caregivers, because if your person doesn't have abnormal vital signs or they're there for something that is not deemed to be particularly urgent or life threatening, um, they're going to have to wait a bit longer to be seen. So uh, I, I like to tell people that it's, you know, boring is good. And if, you, if people aren't running all around you, you're usually in a, in a better place um, overall. So that's kind of like the outline of what kind of happens. And then once, once we get tests back or we talk about what our plan is, then we figure out whether or not the person can go home or, or they need to stay in the hospital. And that's when we really need a lot of help from you all, like one, trying to figure out what we need to actually do to work up what's going on with your person, what things they wouldn't would not want. And then once we find something, what are we going to do about it? And can they go home uh, or do they need to stay in the hospital? So, Dr. Lamb, we know that, you know, um, our, our when we're caring for someone with dementia, they don't always do well with change. You know, so 
just what you described and, you know, even the waiting or the uncertainty or the new faces that are around can be kind of challenging. So from your perspective, what can we as a caregiver do to help your job, you know, to help you know our loved one better and so that you see the whole picture? I, I often feel like, um, you know, the physicians are missing a lot of pieces because we're dealing with, you know, we fell and we need stitches. But there's a lot of more things going on or there can be. Yeah. It can be really disruptive for someone living with dementia to be in the ER. Um, so, you know, a few things is one, I would recommend that you try to get your person to go to the same place. So if you're taking them by private vehicle, by car, um, bring them to the same place so that we have access to their records and that we can see their kind of story over time. Uh, I do like to say that a lot of hospital systems, they don't talk to each other because they're competitors. So it is good to know that your person goes, if they go to the same place, that we'll be able to see what's happened to them in the past. Um, and then, like I said before, I mean, it's very important that we have, that they have dementia documented in their record. So I would make sure that that's listed in their past history. If your person is not able to make their own medical decisions, even if, Sometimes it can be challenging for the medical staff to realize that your person can't make their own decisions because they're still able to have a conversation and seem like they seem like they can have a normal conversation. But, you know, you know better than we do, obviously, what they are capable of and what they're not capable of. So I think letting us know that, you know, although it seems that your person's able to have a conversation, they really don't have the ability to make their own choices. Um, that's something that we need that we need to have communicated. Um, I think also when you come in to have an ex have clear like expectations and a goal for the reason why you're coming into the ER and make sure you communicate that with us, that can help us too. You know, so sometimes what I've seen happen is I have a caregiver that comes in with a loved one and it's towards the end of the visit that I realize that the real reason that they're there in the ER is because there's some issue happening at home and that person can no longer take care of that person in their house or wherever they're living or maybe the person living with dementia is still living independently and the caregiver brought them to the er because of an issue but they're really concerned about them going home and i and i find out too late that that that, that was that actually their goal of the visit so um that's important to communicate like what it is Obviously, if you need stitches, it's very obvious why you're there. But sometimes it's it can be confusing to us um, what the goal is from caregivers. Um, and then I always say, like, if you can bring things that kind of uh, redirect your person and make them feel more comfortable. So things from home, like a blanket, um, maybe a pair of glasses, their hearing aids, which I know are expensive, so that can be kind of challenging. But anything you can kind of do to distract and pass the time with your person, I think that could be really helpful as well. So you you bring up a really interesting point, and that is, you know, competing facilities and and records and things like that. And you know, so what happens if you're at a place that you know you've never been before, or or it just happened to be convenient to go there, or more urgent to go to there does it make sense for them to have because in the past we've talked about a plan right putting together a health plan does it make sense to have kind of a background document where you could give to anybody and say look this is some background on on what you know you know my my person has gone through and and 
um, their background on dementia or any other issues that they've had. Like, I, like, you know, I think about this, like Apple, right? I got this Apple ID or a medical thing. And, um, I was told that if I get an accent, they can open it up and see what like my, my deal is. But I put in there like medications. I put in there like, um, some physical issues I've had in the past with dates and timelines and things like that. Uh, is that useful for someone to kind of compile like a caregiver to compile just in case that they go somewhere and this is the first time they're being seen and they can just literally hand this document off? Yeah, I it absolutely could be very useful. Um, you know, I I think maybe in a, I think later maybe we're going to talk about some things that I recommend that you have with you for the ER. And I do recommend having this like kind of to go kit. Um, but one of the ways that you can improve care for your person in the ER is by having a well-organized medical history, um, you know, on paper, including medications, like you mentioned, like that's super important. So if you if you have kind of a packet that you have either, you, you probably are going to need it in multiple places, like in your car, mm -hmm. uh, documents saved on your cell phone, um, and then maybe, you know, where your person lives. Um, and of course, things would be different depending on if your person is living in their own home, your home or in a facility, kind of trying to organize these documents. But yeah, I think that if your person never goes by ambulance and you have a, a document on paper, and I'll tell you, I prefer paper. Like I like to flip through the papers and read them because that doesn't make me go back to the computer and then get distracted by people handing me EKG, someone calling me to ask me a question. I have a phone call I need to answer, I'm getting distracted. If I can stay in your room and flip through the papers, that's way easier for me. So a medication list, if you're not with your person, like my person has dementia, I'm, I make their medical decisions. Like this, this is an example of what would be helpful to me on a piece of paper. I make their medical decisions. Uh, they're able to do X, Y, and Z. Like they need help with walking. You could even, like have a side note for the nursing staff on how to help them, you know, get out of bed and walk around and uh, what, how they can eat and how they swallow and that sort of thing. But, you know, like we've talked about before with goals of care, if you're not there, it's very helpful for me to know, like my person living with dementia does or does not want their life prolonged at this point or would want treatments that only focus on comfort or would want everything done to keep them alive and prolong their life. Like having a statement like that would be really helpful for me. Um, but yeah, if you're coming to a new facility, the more information that we have on that person, the, I mean, it's not going to hurt. It's only going to help. So complete medical history, medications, allergies to medicines, medications that have caused problems in the past would also be helpful to know because you all know that sometimes people get agitated and we give medications and they can cause side effects for different people depending on how they respond. So that would be good to know. But like a standard note that you that you type out that kind of communicates to us some some things about your person as an individual. That kind of goes back to what you were talking about, Michelle. You know, I think that would be super helpful. Yeah, I think I think this is tying back to some other podcasts we've had in the past about adult children how we just we did a podcast recently on uh, a caregiver, you know, distant caregivers. You know, there might be you know adult children that live further away than the primary caregiver, and how can they help? And this is, I think, a really good area where people who are remote can actually help put together these these documents for the primary caregiver because they're so immersed in the day to day. So, kind of leading on to that, you know, there are some legal documents that come into play during a medical emergency like advanced directives and power of attorneys. 
what are the requirements for an advanced directive? Um, I mean, I'm not entirely sure exactly how that works. And when does it, when does it, and the power attorney go into effect during an emergency? Yeah, so two separate things. So your advanced directive, there's a federal law that says that we're able to direct our healthcare in advance. So each state has different ways that they do that um, and, and have legal forms that follow their guidelines. Um, and so for each state, you would want to look up like advanced healthcare directive in Virginia or in Florida, whatever state. And then you you need to know how to make that an actual legal document. Most of the time, there's some sort of witness requirement. In some states, they require notarization. I think that's becoming more lax over time because people are realizing how important this is. But each state has its own kind of um, legal templates for advanced directives. A lot of people do this with an attorney. Um, advanced directives, you can do them online through services like LegalZoom. You just have to make sure that whatever you do follows your state's requirements to make it a legal document. Now, to do an advanced directive, you have to do it in advance. So you have to have the ability to make your own medical decisions when you do an advanced directive. So it's time sensitive for someone who's diagnosed with dementia to actually talk with family and, and talk about what kind of health um, healthcare things they would and would not want going forward. The advanced directives are very general because they are drafted by attorneys. They don't tell us what specifically to do in any sort of medical condition. They usually use pretty vague language um, like, you know, if I am deemed to have a situation in which two physicians say that I'm not going to live or I'm, you know, it's likely that I'm going to die. My death is imminent or I have an end stage condition and I'm not going to survive that. I don't want life prolonging treatment. They usually say things like that. Sometimes they talk about specific things like intubation and feeding tubes. So like being on a ventilator, that sort of thing. So I don't find them to be incredibly helpful in the emergency department. This, that's, I have never, I've been, I've been working in the ER for almost a decade. And I can tell you that reading an advanced directive, like a living will, which is the most common, has never directly translated in me to me telling a caregiver, well, this is what your person wants in this situation. So they're, they're not a bad thing to have done, but they, they're not something to rely on. Um, and they 100% have to be done by the person when they still have decision-making ability. Um, so that's, that's what I'll say about advanced directives. And then the power of attorney, uh, there's different names in different states. So healthcare surrogate, um, healthcare proxy, medical power of attorney, those are all different terms. It's just the legal person who's able to make your medical decisions when you can't make them on your own. And the way that that goes into effect is when someone's lost their decision-making ability, which that's a medical term called capacity. So basically, can you make your own decisions? Meaning if I'm the doctor and I'm telling you that you have X, Y, and Z problem happening, and I tell you that the options for treatment are X, Y, and Z, that you can tell me, okay, I understand what's going on and I understand what my options are and this is my choice and I understand what my choice means and what the potential repercussions of that choice are. So if someone's able to make um, an informed choice, you know, based on the situation that they have at hand. So a lot of times when people get sick, who are living, people who are living with dementia get sick, they lose this ability to make their own decisions even if they normally do sometimes. Like if they still have decision-making ability normally, a lot of times when they get sick, they lose that. 
And we're all at risk of that. We're all at risk of getting super sick and not being able to make our own decisions, which is why having a medical power attorney or someone that you have designated to do that for you is incredibly important for every person, every adult person in our, in our country. Um, and again, you have to declare the person you want to make medical decisions for you ahead of losing your ability to make decisions. Is there a way to make advanced directives more useful for doctors like you? Um, that's a, that's a complicated question to ask. I've been asking my, myself that question for a long time. Um, so a lot of the documents allow for you to specify and add things to them. Um, but I think that, I think an attorney would struggle with, um, with, with that because it, it wouldn't fall in line with the template, with the templated form. Um, and I think also because they're so general, because they're so generalized, it can be hard to, to put in advance, um, a lot of detail about, about what you would and would not want in, inside of a form like that, because like what I'm doing in my course is, is teaching people all the medical conditions that are likely to happen with dementia and then just aging in general and the, and allowing them to understand what the treatments options are and then which treatment options would fall in line with their person's goals of care. That plan is really for them to use on their person's behalf. I think trying to put that inside an advanced directive, I'm not sure that and like that that, that would be considered a legal document. Um, I do think that adding in language like um, this is what quality of life means to me, these things. And if I don't have these things, then I don't want um, then I don't want treatments that would then I wouldn't want treatments that prolong my life anymore. I think language like that could be included. And there are also um, better advanced directives I have seen specific to dementia that I think that people may be able to use as well. It just depends on the state. Um, and of course, there's the legal side of things, and then there's the practical application of things. And for me, if you know, I have a patient in front of me that has documented disease of dementia and other illnesses, whatever, and the family's coming to me with paperwork that's clearly explaining their wishes, and everybody's on the same page, like, I'm very likely not to say, well, this isn't a legal document. I'm not going to follow this. You know, I'm going to do what's in the best interest for the patient. And what their decision makers are telling me. So, you know, I think that I think doing this type of planning that I'm talking about is very helpful, but I don't know about actually translating that into advanced directives legally. Um, I think we have a lot of work to do as a society and as a country in making advanced directives um, better. Yeah, for sure. So both of our parents you know, were very clear that they wanted do not resuscitate orders, you know, and I think um, they're probably not alone in believing that if you have a do not resuscitate in place, then it answers all the questions that the physician might have, right? We know that's not true, but I think that's what they believed. And one of the things that you talk about is you call it POST, P-O-S-T, um, which is physician's order for scope of treatment. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so um, that's a Virginia document, um, and it comes from a document that was created in Oregon. So the original document is called POST, 
uh, physician orders for life-sustaining treatment. And the idea is that a DNR, you know, I, I don't remember if we talked about this last time, but a DNR, you know, it only goes into effect when someone is actively dying, when they don't have a pulse and they're not breathing anymore. That's the only time you can really use the do not resuscitate. So I, that is a big misconception about the DNR. So the, this, this other form was developed because it's an expansion of that. So it helps us know more in line what someone um, uh, would or would not want when it comes to treatments that do sustain, like prolong someone's life artificially. So in speaking about the post form, which is the state form in Virginia, it basically breaks down um, somebody's wishes into three categories, which is kind of what I teach when it goes, um, goes along with goals of care. So it's, you know, full treatment, limited treatments, and then comfort. Um, I'll tell you that the post form is not my favorite uh, document. If you want to see a very well done version of this program, uh, you should look at the most form. So Maryland orders for life-sustaining treatment. That actually spells out specific treatments that someone has when they're critically ill. It doesn't cover everything, but it covers a lot. Um, so it covers, you know, the different the different ways that we support someone with breathing before we would put them on a machine, the ventilator. Um, it covers blood transfusions. It covers antibiotics, different ways that we give antibiotics because that would affect where someone could receive treatment, um, like in the hospital or at home. Um, it covers things like um, whether or not someone would want to even go to the hospital because that's a big that's a big issue in, in dementia. When people have severe and advanced dementia, uh, I often find them keep being brought to the hospital from their living facility. And then I call their caregivers and they're like, I don't understand why, why they've come in again, you know? So going to the hospital is one thing. And then um, it also talks about on that form, when someone comes into the hospital, what kind of workup do they want to have done? Like, do they want to have uh, tests and things that would help with comfort, or do they want to try to find the reason why they're feeling the way that they are, diagnose a disease, and then treat it? So um, the the pulse the pulse program is that form that they created is incredibly helpful for people who are living with dementia. Every dementia family caregiver should look at the form and know kind of things that they may have to decide about in the future. Um, but I will tell you that not every state has that form as a legal document, like Florida. It's not a legal document in Florida, um, but it is still worth looking at. And I think that it can help people kind of plan for the future. And I teach all of that stuff in my in my course. Does it help you as a physician, even if it's not a legal document for someone like if I were to if I lived in Florida and I looked at that document and I just put together like a rough, rough idea? Does uh, it does that help you or not really yeah. because it's not a legal document? So, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but if someone filled out that form and brought it into me, I would, it would, it would help me understand what the person's goals were, their goals of care were, and it would help me have a conversation with the caregiver um, about what we we're going to do. I will say too, that I should have said that just like the do not resuscitate order, these forms are uh, signed by a, a medical provider, by a healthcare provider, like a physician, a PA, a nurse practitioner, in order to go into effect. So they, you cannot do them on behalf of your person. You can do them on behalf of your person, but you do it in conjunction alongside a healthcare provider. Um, but in Florida, I, 
I mean, if you understood it, which I think that the, I think the forms can be kind of confusing if you don't have medical background, um, trying to know whether or not you would want that treatment. I mean, if you, if you don't know what the treatment is used for and you don't know what it means, it may be kind of challenging to fill it out. But, you know, in this situation, it's like, if you're doing what's in the best interest for your person and the decision that you're making makes sense from a medical standpoint, like I'm thinking about if you came in and we were trying to figure out what to do. I mean, I, I don't find very many ER physicians out there challenging caregivers when it comes to what we're going to do moving forward based on the legality of documents. I just don't really see that happening in practice. So, you know, one thing I wanted to kind of go back and touch on, we, we touched on a little bit today. We talked about it last time, but I think it's a really important, um, really important aspect of, of your healthcare. And I think, I know this is what you teach your course about. So let's talk a little bit about, um, medical care plan and, um, how you work with families to create plans, you know, during different points of their diagnosis. Yeah. So in my opinion, uh, like I've said, the advanced directives are just not enough. And so what I, what I think needs to happen is that for each person living with dementia, that they have their own individualized treatment plan. And so making sure that whatever medical decisions that we make go in line with what they would say if they could speak for themselves. And so it's, it's identifying what quality of life means to them and how that translates into their goals of care. And then medical care planning, as far as I teach it, is we go over all of the conditions that the person is most likely to face. And then we talk about the treatment options and then, you know, look at whether or not those treatment options fall in line with their goals of care now and then what they would look like in the future. And it's just creating a document for the caregiver to use and um, as, as they're being asked to make medical decisions. And so that's that's what I'm teaching inside of my course. My course covers like 20 plus conditions that are common in dementia and then also in aging and just um, aging and then just in being a human being um, in general and how those things are treated. But then there if people want to work with me on an individual level to cover every single medical condition their person could be at risk for, you know, I do phone consultations for that, that type of work. Um, and I can also help people with digesting a recent ER visit or a recent hospital stay and trying to figure out, you know, how that impacted their person, what actually happened and how that's going to change things going forward. So, um, but I, but I believe that, I believe that when someone's diagnosed with dementia, it's very important to think about what their life is like now, what it's going to look like in the future and, and the type of care that they receive. Um, I think it's important to plan for that. Um, because I see caregivers carrying around this stress, this under this underlying like stress hanging over them of not knowing what's normal, you know, from a medical standpoint with dementia as it progresses, the different diseases that cause dementia and how that can affect someone medically. Um, but then also like what they're going to do when something happens. And so I personally believe that there's a lot of stress on caregivers that you can't necessarily take away because you don't know like how someone's going to act on the day to day and what kind of issues are going to come up with where they're living. But I personally believe that this type of stress that people carry about the uncertainty from a medical st standpoint, I think that pl 
planning can can take away a lot of that stress. So that's kind of my mission is to decrease this this piece of stress on caregivers. Well, I think this medical plan, I know when we talked last time, um, one, I think, you know, I wish we knew about this, right? When we were going through it with our parents, I think this would have been something we really could have worked on even as we were remote to help them, you know, prepare these documentations and talk with them and try and discuss what's, you know, the plan. And the other thing is, is that I don't have dementia. At least I don't think I do. Um, and I think about this for myself. So I think everybody should be thinking about, you know, a medical plan of, of what happens and especially as you get older. And, and so I'm, I'm taking this stuff to heart just for myself. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we love what you're doing. I think there's just a huge need for it. And I think, you know, we have the same experience of, you know, millions of other families probably where we just don't know because we're caring for someone, a, a parent or a spouse with dementia, and we're just putting out little fires all the time. So if we end up in the ER or, you know, whether it be something relatively simple, a UTI or a fall that requires stitches, you know, we're going to end up in the ER, but it's generally not the first visit to the ER where we learn our lesson. Sometimes it takes us a few times, you know? And so I love that you have put together something called a go-to kit. That is something that you um, have put a lot of thought in. And I'd love for you to talk about that because, you know, Knowing that ahead of time, when when your loved one, when your person has been diagnosed with dementia, especially if they're in a long time long term care facility where you might not be with them every day, so you might not, the call that you get might be the kind of call that I got, which was like we're in the ambulance taking your dad to the ER. I didn't know he was having a problem. I was there two days ago. He was fine, you know. Yeah. Um, but to, to, let's talk about that for a minute. This this go to kit that you that you call and, you know, what are some of the key things that families should think about so that they can just walk into the hospital in a little bit better mindset? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I called, I call this a to go kit, um, you know, and, and people can change it and add to it and do whatever is best for them. But I think about it in two categories, like things for you um, to keep you comfortable and occupied and then things for your person. So some of the things for you, and I recommend that people have this to, to go kit wherever is convenient for them. Um, and you may want more, more than one of them. Um, like I talked about, maybe in your car, or maybe somewhere in your house that you can quickly grab it. Um, but a phone charger is important. Um, if you, I think you should pack like something to write on and a pen or pencil, um, something to keep yourself occupied, like a book or a magazine. Um, snacks, water in there, maybe a little bit of money in case you need to go to a vending machine real quick, although a lot of vending machines these days take cards. Um, bags that you can like stuff in there so you can put other stuff inside of there in case your person has valuables or something on them that you don't want to be hospitalized with them if they're going to stay. Um, and then I think that you should pack your person's medical care plan. So the plan that I hope you make, I think you should bring that with you. Um, and then, you know, I, I think paperwork needs to go in there as well. And But I also recommend that people keep copies of their paperwork on their phone. Um, however, you like to keep yourself organized digitally as well. Like Google Drive or in your notes section, on your phone, wherever. Um, but for your person, you know, copies of like their IDs, their health insurance, their full medication list, 
Um, if they're like, I, I talk about having notes to staff, like what we've spoken about earlier on this, on this episode is, you know, having some notes that could be helpful and how to better care for your person, how to redirect them if they get upset, um, what, what, what they like to be called, maybe even like what music they like to listen to. Um, I've played music before for patients like Frank Sinatra and things to try to see if I can help kind of calm them down sometimes. Um, so stuff like that, like anything that you think could help us provide better care, know your person a little bit better. Um, I also advocate for, you know, hey, this is my husband and he is a former athlete. He played football. He is a grandfather of six grandkids, like something that allows us to see your person as a human being. Um, I think that's always helpful for staff um, because the hospital is super hard place to work and we do get a little bit crusty and burnt out. So I think that might help. Um, and then things that could help redirect your person, make them more comfortable, like a blanket they may um, uh, like recognize, um, and then things that help them be, be oriented to where they are. So a cheap watch, maybe they're an extra pair of glasses, hearing aids, which I've said they're expensive. So you have to figure out whether or not you would want to bring those. But being able to communicate to hear and to see and to know what time it is can be really helpful to someone living with dementia um, as far as trying to decrease their confusion. Um, and it just depends on how far, how advanced they are, whether or not those things would be helpful. Um, of course, your advanced directives and the form that says that you're able to make their medical decisions. Um, so that's, those are like the big things. Um, the only other thing I'll tell you too is that if you go to a freestanding emergency department, which those are becoming more common, people are being brought by ambulance to those facilities. They are not always, um, they don't always have full pharmacies. Okay, so there's medications that they won't have. So if there are medications that are really important for your person to have at a very specific time, like Parkinson's medications, uh, it can be helpful to have those, some of some of those pills um, in a to-go kit. So, um, so yeah, I'm happy to. I mean, I can share my list um, with your with your folks. I'm happy to. I mean, it's just a basically like a PDF. I can let you have a copy of it, and you can send it out. That would be helpful. That'd be awesome if you could share that. We'll put that in the show notes below. And um, in in conjunction with that, like we like to, uh, how can people find you? Like, so what can we put in the show notes, show notes for people to uh, find you and contact you? Yeah. So I think, I think just going to my website is probably the easiest thing. It's um, be lamb, be as in Brittany, lamb is in sheep, md.com. Um, and on there, you know, you can get onto my email list or you can be emailed my weekly blog post. The blog is there. Uh, you can get the link to get into my Facebook community where I try to do weekly videos in there to give education to caregivers. Um, and then if, you, if you're on social media, um, my Instagram is blam.md. Um, so those would be the big, the big ways to get a hold of me. There's information about my course on my website as well. Um, and how to contact me about that too. So, well, I know it works because I went on there and I logged in and I signed up for your newsletter and I get it. So, and, and <laughs> okay. I, I signed up for your course and I, I haven't, I've started it, but I haven't gotten too far, but I'm getting there. Fair enough. Yeah, we all need to do that. 
So, um, I mean, Sean alluded to it. We both did what will include your contact information, your website, your social accounts, you know, um, a link to your course, which is so very valuable. Um, and we just can't thank you enough for coming back. We, we really appreciate you and all that you do to help families better understand their, the medical responsibilities around caring for a loved one with dementia. So Dr. Lamb, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm happy to come and chat with you guys anytime. I'm sure you will. <laughs> the door is always open. So thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lamb. It's, it's always a pleasure. 